love you, we praise you, and we're seeking you this morning and asking that you would direct us, that you would teach us from your word about the kingdom of God, and especially how do you advance the kingdom from these parables. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Mark chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 26 through 34, page 571 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, Someone will bring you one and give it to you. It's our gift to you, uh, going through the gospel of Mark verse by verse. And today we are at these final parables on the kingdom of God. Chapter 4 has been focused on parables, specifically of sowing seed, and so lots of farming parables here. So I thought it would be nice to start out with a little bit of farming jokes. Is that okay? If it isn't, oh well. Watch this. I was thinking about making a video about farm jokes. Oh yeah? You're always coming up with new video ideas. Yeah, problem was it was uh, too corny. Farming, it isn't for everyone, but hey, it's in my genes. <laughs> Guys, what do you call a twitchy cow? What's that? Oh. Beef jerky. What do you call a happy cattleman? I don't know. A jolly rancher. <laughs> what do you call a cow that doesn't produce milk? I'm milk dud. Milk dud. Did you hear about the magic tractor? No, I didn't. It turned into a field. No way! That's crazy! Why can't you tell secrets on the farm? Because the potatoes have eyes and the corn has ears. (laughs) What do you call a successful farmer? Outstanding in their field. What? Stop stalking me! How did the farmer find his wife? He tracked her down! (laughs) Brogana, what farm animal keeps the best time? I don't know. A watchdog. Hey Greg, how much do you love farming? I love farming from my head to my toes. (laughs) Why do farmers make good DJs? because they know how to turn up the beats. <laughs> I support farming. You do? Yeah. I guess that makes me protractor. What did the mama cow say to her calf? It's past your bedtime. Why do cows have hooves instead of feet? Because they lactose. What do you call a cow without a calf? Decaffeinated. What do you call being a vegetarian? A huge mistake. You know why a bankrupt cowboy can't complain? No, why's that? Because they ain't got no beef. (laughs) Why can't cattle eat round bales? Because they need three square meals a day. What do you call a cow with two legs? Lean beef. What do you call a cow with no legs? Ground beef. What do you call a sleeping bull? A bulldozer. (laughs) What do you call cattle who laugh at your jokes? Laughing stock. Why do cattle like being told jokes? They are a moo. 
confused. Why did the cow cross the road? To get to the other side. Why did the rooster cross the road? To prove he wasn't chicken. Why did the horse cross the road? To get to the other neighborhood. Why did the farmer cross the road? To get all of his animals back. Oh. Uh. So seriously, <laughs> what does farming have to do with the kingdom of God? Farmers are hard workers and they're smart workers. Interesting fact, right around 1000 AD, they invented two things, a better plow and a better harness for the horse. And with those two inventions, they were able to you know, cut into the ground more, and so they were able to get a lot better crops. From those two inventions, we really can see the rise of the middle class. Uh, people, instead of just farming for subsistence level, farming where they were getting just enough to eat, they were able to have bumper crops, able to sell, and then, then all of a sudden you don't have to have everybody farming, and then so they branched out, were able to do more things. People got involved in schools, et cetera, et cetera. And you really have, from that point on, the, the, the rise of the middle class, and you can thank farmers for that. Um, farmers, though, absolutely depend on God to bring a harvest. But they sow the seed. And that's what we're going to see in our passage. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 26. The kingdom of God is like this. He said, a man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. He was speaking the word to them with many parables like these as they were able to understand. He did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he explained everything to his own disciples. The kingdom of God is like farming. And here we see how the kingdom of God advances uh, and how these parables make for a good illustration, farming and the kingdom of God. Now, what we first notice here in the first parable is that the kingdom of God advances through the word. In this parable, this first parable, the mysterious power of the seed is emphasized, but we do see that first the person scatters the seed on the ground. And we saw that that farmer, when we looked at the very first parable in chapter one, in chapter four, verses one through 20, that we are the farmers. We're the ones who sow the seed. But what is the seed? Go back to chapter 4, verse 14, and it says, The sower sows 
the word. The word of God is the seed. And we see that there's power in the word of God. The word of God is powerful. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. We'll see several verses that bring this idea out. I hope to encourage you from the word about how powerful the word is so that you will share the word and see and also dig into the word to see the change that can take place in your own life. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is alive and active, the NIV says here, living and effective. It gets the work done because there's power in the word itself. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. First Thessalonians 2.13, Paul states, this is why we constantly thank God because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. See how powerful the word is. It works effectively in those who who believe. It's used by God to bring people to Jesus Christ. That's how powerful the word is. I love Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah 23, 29. Jeremiah lived probably one of the roughest lives you can imagine. Just absolutely tragic. You see that in the book of Lamentations and the things that, and even in the, 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 the book of Jeremiah where it describes his his life, but here's what he says about the word of God. He says, is not my word like fire? This is the Lord's declaration. And like a hammer that pulverizes the rock. Finally, look at James chapter one, verse 21. James uses this idea of the word of God being powerful to bring about salvation. He says, therefore... Ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There's something powerful about the word of God that when shared by the Holy Spirit leading you, that it can save people's souls when they embrace it, when they receive the implanted word. The Bible and the voice of the Lord are the word of God. Now, I believe the Bible is the supreme word of God because it is without error. It is our final authority. But God also speaks to us. He didn't go mute after he wrote the Bible, did he? And we've seen that already, how we have those, hear that still small voice of the Lord where we experience impressions from God. Both that, both the Word of God, the Bible, as well as the Word of God, when we sense His presence, when we hear His voice, that can mature us like nothing else. Do you want to be mature? 
You want to grow up and experience the fullness that God has for you. He uses the word of God to bring that about. So dig in and pray. Dig into the word, the Bible, pray and listen to God and he will grow you up, okay? When I was 21, my brain was fried. But I surrendered to the Lord and I saturated it with the word. I couldn't get enough of the Bible. And I would just read it and read it and read it and dig in and pray. In fact, it even helped me stop smoking. Okay? Uh, I, that was a struggle. That was tough. So what I did was I carried a little pocket Bible it with me. And every time I got a craving, instead of smoking, I would read a full chapter of the Bible. Okay? So I'm, in fact, I was kind of silly back then, but I would climb a tree and read a chapter of the Bible instead of having a cigarette, okay? And it worked because I think the devil got so tired of giving me those uh, cravings because he didn't want me reading the Bible, okay? And so it worked. So there's power in the Word. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do I look like a space cadet? Thank you. See, I did not want Tim to, you know, okay. Um, and I was hoping for a good response, thank you. <laughs> but let me just say this. It is only by the grace of God, because his word is powerful. It can change you no matter where you have been, no matter where you're at right now as you dig into the word. The word of God is powerful. And therefore, we should not, cannot be ashamed of God's method of advancing the kingdom of God. He advances the kingdom of God through his word. And it's, Paul said in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's The gospel is the part of the word that shares with us how we can get saved. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Notice there, the word of God. I'm not ashamed of it because it is actually the power of God to bring people to Jesus Christ. And so he's calling us, don't be ashamed of this word. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 it says, for the word of the cross. Now, the word of the cross, that's the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. And if you put your trust in Christ and what he did for you, you are forgiven of your sins and you enter into this relationship with God as his son, his daughter. And so we see here, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. That's what the Bible says about the word of God. Do you see how important it is to our lives and to be sharing it with others? So do not be ashamed of the word of God. In fact, um, you're gonna get an email from me tomorrow, all right? It's already sent, it's already set up. It's gonna go out tomorrow morning, so don't put it in your junk mail, 
Okay, And basically, the email just gives you some statistics that um, uh, originally, actually, Heather Tan sent me this. She found these, and I found them extraordinary. So you're going to get them. You'll see the statistics of how the Word of God can change your life and how it makes such a difference if you're regularly reading it. So check that out, okay? It will change you personally. So here we see the word of God is powerful. We cannot be ashamed of God's method of advancing the kingdom. Now, our parable primarily brings this point out. The kingdom of God advances through God's sovereign work. Notice back at the parable, it does say in verse 26, a man scatters the seed on the ground. And so we, as the farmers, are to share the word to others. If that doesn't happen... The miracle doesn't happen, right? So we're to share it. But now look at what happens once the farmer does that. It says he sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. Notice here, it's all about God. God is the one who produces the harvest, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. This is kind of an interesting passage because uh, this is where the, some of the people at that church were trying to pit Apollos and Paul against each other. So they were trying to bring division, all right? Kind of like when your kids try to get in between mom and dad. Anybody ever experienced that? They're really good at it, aren't they? Okay, that thing, don't let, them hap- don't let that happen, all right? Well, fortunately, Paul didn't let that happen either uh, with them. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5. This was Paul's response. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So they did plant the seed. They did do that and water it. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. But notice the emphasis here as well as in our parable. It's God who brings it about. And so we share the word and then we trust in God to bring about the harvest. That's what we're seeing. Now, what is the harvest? The last verse of this parable, verse 29, actually gives us an indication of it. In verse 29, it says, As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, the original readers of this parable, when they saw this, they would have thought about Joel chapter 3 because it's very similar wording, the Greek here, as the Greek Septuagint version of Joel chapter 3. And so they would have seen that he is referring to the harvest ultimately as the eschatological judgment day. Look at Joel chapter 3, verse 13, and we'll see that. So once again, Jesus is is using the same wording as Joel to remind 
about this idea uh, with the sickle of the judgment day. Joel chapter 3, verse 13 says, Swing the sickle because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes because the winepress is full. The wine vats overflow because the wickedness of the nations is extreme. Now, Joel is primarily emphasizing the harvest of the wicked to go to judgment, to go to hell. Whereas Jesus, using the same wording, he is speaking of this harvest, harvesting the believers who go to be with him for eternity, okay? On judgment day, both of these things will take place. Jesus is emphasizing the positive, which I kind of like better, But Joel is emphasizing the negative. Now, what's interesting is this same illustration is used in Revelation, bringing about both ideas, the harvest of souls to come to Christ, as well as the harvest of those who refuse Christ and then then experience the wrath of God. Look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 14 through 20. It's the last book of the Bible. Revelation 14, verse 14. It says, Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man, that's Jesus, was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come, since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Here is the harvesting of all the believers. This, you could really say, is the rapture. Verse 17, he goes on, though. He says, Then another angel, who also had a sharp sickle, came out of the temple in heaven. Yet another angel, who had authority over fire, came from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth, because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth. And he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. So we see the two harvests, one for God, one to experience the wrath of God in hell. And that's the ultimate eschatological day of the Lord that we can see being spoken of here in our verse, verse 29, with the sickle and the harvest to come. Okay, so it is the eschatological judgment, James 5, 7, and 8. Let's look at that. James 5, verses 7 and 8. James says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. So that's the second coming of Jesus. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. And so we are being reminded here, he is coming soon. Be patient, but be good farmers sowing the seed, trusting in God to bring about the harvest. Yes, the kingdom of God is advanced when people are healed, 
when demons are cast out, when people are set free. But the central focus is souls in the balance. Because everyone will either go to heaven or to hell. They will experience this last day. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation, if you've truly been born again, you will be harvested and will, uh, with Jesus and the, just the wonderful glory forever and ever and ever. But we need to seek to sow the word so that as many as possible will miss out on the day of judgment, okay? Um, that brings us to the second parable. The kingdom of God starts out small, but ends grand. Look at verse 30. He says, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. Let me read from Walter Wessel's commentary on this. He says, this is the third and last of the parables about the seed sown. The mustard seed is the smallest seed you plant in the ground, verse 31. The NIV has interpreted the Greek, which really reads, which is smaller than any seed in the ground at its sowing. The mustard seed was proverbial for its smallness. But it is not, in fact, the smallest known seed. The seed of the black orchid is smaller. Jesus obviously was not giving a lesson in botany. The mustard seed was the smallest seed his audience was familiar with. When grown, it becomes a huge tree-like shrub, verse 32. I myself have seen one about 10 feet high in front of the monastery on top of Mount Tabor and another almost that size near the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. The main point of the parable is that the kingdom of God is like what happens to the mustard seed. It has insignificant and weak beginnings, but a day will come when it will be great and powerful. Now, some take this parable and they have embraced what's called post-millennialism. They believe that this means that the, that the church is just going to keep growing and growing until everybody on the planet receives Jesus Christ and you have very few, if any, unbelievers anymore. Now, the rest of the scriptures make, that, make it very clear that is not true. Okay? But what it is saying is that the kingdom starts out very small, but then becomes very grand. Okay, a small band of fishermen. That's how Christianity started out. Jesus, who never traveled more than 200 miles in his whole life, never wrote anything down except when he wrote something in the dirt, and we don't even know what that was, okay? That somehow through this band of fishermen, the church grows in the second and third century, the church is persecuted, and yet it spreads throughout the Roman Empire to, to where we have it today, where the church is all over the planet. It is the most diverse religion on the planet, which is awesome, okay? And that's what we see. So we see this taking place. And so therefore, 
in light of this, don't despise the day of small things. Zechariah 4, verse 10 makes that plain. Don't despise the day of small things. Do you sometimes feel like you aren't accomplishing much? That happens to all of us, right? Keep serving. When we got here 10 years ago, Harvest Fellowship was averaging about 150 people on a Sunday. Now we have somewhere between 300 to 350 in the two services. That's not incredible growth, but it's growth. We have baptized over the last 10 years approximately 300 people. That's awesome, okay? But that's just a part of this, okay? We have sent out missionaries. We have sent out pastors who are now multiplying the work. Our future goals, we'd like to become somewhere around four to 500 in average Sunday morning attendance and then start planting churches. We don't want to become a mega church or anything like that. We see ourselves simply a part of God's grand plan to accomplish this. Ultimately, worldwide revival is the end goal. That's what God has called us to do. We see this in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where he says, go into all the world and make disciples. We see that in the very end, this will actually happen. Look at Revelation chapter 7. We see the fulfillment of the Great Commission taking place at the end. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Once again, it's the last book of the Bible. He starts out, he says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Then the angels stood around the throne. They fell down. They were worshiping. God skipped to uh, verse uh, 14 here. Uh, They asked him, uh, who are these people? And I said to him, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. This is one of three times in the book of Revelation where we see a great revival taking place at the end of time, where God's His calling to reach every nation, tongue, tribe, and people because God loves a colorful church. This is what he wants to bring about, and guess what? It's going to happen. And we get to have a part in it. We get to have, we don't know how big or small a part, but we get to have a part in advancing the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to look at 2 Peter 3, 9 because some of you perhaps have wondered What's he waiting for? Why doesn't Jesus come back? I'm tired of all the troubles and difficulties of life, etc. Well, look, he tells us why in the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 
He wants us to share with everybody so that everybody has an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ. That's what he's waiting for. Now, I want you to see a very curious verse. Look at verse 12. He says, as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. We actually can hasten the day of the Lord. It's coming. You say, how can we do that? By sharing the gospel so that everyone has an opportunity because God doesn't want any to perish but all to come to repentance. He's waiting for us to fulfill the Great Commission. That's what he's waiting for. So you can decide, I think I'll just kick back and do nothing, and then it'll take longer, (laughs) okay? Or you can find your part to play in advancing the kingdom of God. And your part is not to sit in a chair and do this. Right? This does not advance the kingdom of God. It's kind of fun, though. I can go backwards, too. Watch that. You got my point. Okay. Our part? Share the seed. Share the word. We share with everybody because we're not ashamed. His part? produce the crop. It's that simple. Now, this brings us to this last point here that he brings up in uh, verses 33 through 35. The kingdom of God is understood by true disciples. Look what he says. He was speaking the word to them with many parables like these as they were able to understand. That explains the difficult verse of chapter 4, verse 12. He did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he explained everything to his own disciples. Wessel, again, explains. He says he did this in order to help them understand by means of a veiled confrontation with the truth. It was his gracious means to stimulate their thinking and awaken their spiritual perception. The crowd was not ready for a direct revelation of the truth. In contrast, when Jesus was alone with his disciples, he could speak more directly with them, but even they needed his explanation to understand. Do you hunger for his word? Because the true disciple will hear the parables, will hear the word, and something will draw them to where they want more. They want to understand. They must have God. And then God's word brings them to Christ. They're saved, and then they become a true disciple. Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32, let me read that very, very important statement on those who supposedly believed. Look what he says. Verse 30, it says, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you continue in my word. And so we share, we share the word, and some are drawn to it. They can't get enough of it. And they are then changed forever. And the kingdom of God is advanced. So that brings up a question. What is the kingdom of God? Okay. The kingdom of God, very simply, is the rule and reign of the king. And who's the king? 
Jesus is the king, okay? Jesus brought the kingdom when he came because he's the king. So when he was here, he brought the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God was manifest and he healed the sick, he cast out demons and he shared the gospel and people received it, okay? So he brought the kingdom. He didn't bring a political kingdom, however. That comes at the second coming, all right? So he primarily, so we primarily focus on the spiritual realm, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, then he left, right? But he poured out the Holy Spirit upon us. And so in a very real sense, when we look at all the passages talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of God is here now, but it's not yet. It's here in part, but not fully, because the king isn't back. When the king comes back, the kingdom will fully be here. Nobody will have any sickness anymore, et cetera, et cetera. But then also, no one will have any more opportunity to receive Jesus Christ. So the kingdom of God is now in part, and so sometimes we do see people healed. But not everyone is healed. The kingdom of God is now in part, and so we can gain real victory over sin, can't we? And yet we will always struggle with temptation. And so we need the word of God to help us be strong. So we see this idea, it's now and not yet. The Holy Spirit is in us, we share the word, the kingdom is advanced, and we wait for the return of the king. I grew up across the street from a pig farm. Gene Burt, friend of mine, worked at the pig farm, by the way, across the street from a pig farm down in Rochester, near Rochester. When the wind was blowing right, okay, that's just where I lived, right? That's where I grew up. Gene Burt, he got up early in the morning and he fed all the pigs. They had a large pig farm. And then he got on the school bus with me to go to uh, Harriet Bishop, that's where we went to school, if anybody's from Rochester, okay? Well, so, but he was a hard worker. He took me many, many times to his pig farm and showed me how things worked. It was fascinating. And in seeing firsthand what it takes to be a farmer, I realized that farmers are hard workers. They are intelligent human beings. Don't let anybody tell you differently, even if he's a politician, And they absolutely depend on God for a harvest. God is calling us to advance the kingdom of God. And we're to learn from the farmers. We sow the seed, we use God's wisdom, and we trust God for the harvest. And we are seeking the harvest of a revival. 